1: In a world of people going out to lunch, one group of silent guardians doesn't have time. Okay, what's it gonna be? Thai,
2: tacos, or falafel?
1: This summer, the men and women of public radio are too busy to do anything except eat at their desks.
2: I want extra onions. And then if anybody says no onions on theirs, then I want those onions too.
1: In a city divided by takeout choices, One group doesn't follow the menu, they make the menu.
3: I want tofu pad thai, no GMO
4: peanuts, no listeria in the bean sprouts, spelt or quinoa pasta for the noodles, and free range scallions.
2: If somebody says no onions, that theoretically frees up some onions. Do you understand what I'm saying?
1: Coming this summer, Thai lunch three, the rise of reflux.
2: I had a bad sandwich yesterday and my stomach was all like,
5: all afternoon.
1: Starring Academy Award winner John Dankowski. I want the green chicken curry. I want it spicy, and I want it five minutes ago. Tucker Ives. I don't think the plastic bag is going to hold together. Kayone Wolf.
2: You know, is there any way you can take out the pork and the potatoes and just replace them all with onions?
1: Harriet Jones.
2: What I always have, the sheep and oatmeal combo platter.
1: Betsy Kaplan.
2: No, thanks. I had a peanut butter sandwich at 11. I'm good.
1: And Haig Papazian as Dr. Yossarian. I didn't go to medical school in Honduras for eight years just to lose another patient to indigestion. Nurse, start one of those drippy things. Thai lunch three, the rise of reflux.
5: Okay, I ate something weird.
1: I want it so spicy, it makes me cry like a little girl. That kind of spicy. Be hungry, be very hungry.
3: I'm afraid, what if it isn't really crab?
1: On July 27, they're putting the goon back in Crab Rangoon. Thai Lunch 3, the rise of reflux. In space, no one can hear you burp. (laughs)
3: <laughs> all right. So uh, there you go. That's the whole show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Let's <laughs> uh, go. Oh, that's right. We're all done. <laughs> See you. Bye. <laughs> so, no, we, we are talking about movie trailers today. Uh, mm. uh, in studio with us, uh, as is appropriate, The Culture Dogs, Sam Hatch, uh, and Kevin O'Toole. Mm. They host a show on WWUH on Sunday evenings. Appropriately, it is called The Culture Dogs. Thank you. Also I'm, with us, Stephen Garrett. He's the founder of Jump Cut, an advertising company that specializes in trailers. He's worked on more than 250 trailers and has received 12 Golden Trailer Awards. There are actually awards in. 29 nominations. In fact, Stephen Garrett, maybe we could just start there. Uh, people might be surprised to find out that there are uh, special awards for trailers, uh, the Golden Trailers. So who gives out those? <laughs> who gives out the Golden Trailers?
0: <laughs> uh, the Golden Trailer Award Company, I guess. I don't, they're, they're these two very lovely women who started the company about um, 15 years ago, started the um, the award... Uh, the awards show, mm-hmm. and um, I, they started it in response to the fact that uh, the more traditional award show for uh, anything related to marketing uh, for films is called the Key Art Award, Key Art being, you know, the movie poster, trailer, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And uh, The Hollywood Reporter actually sponsors that, and they've been doing it for decades. And uh, But they only have, I think at that point and maybe even still, they only have like one or maybe two categories for trailers. And um, the people who started the Golden Trailer Awards always felt, you know, well, that seems a little underrepresenting uh, the quality and the breadth and width of different types of trailers that are out there. So why don't we start an award show that recognizes that? Um, they have a lot of categories. So um, some might say there's an overreach in terms of the amount of categories. But certainly I've been the recipient of a lot of obscure niche categories, so I'm not complaining.
3: L- like what would be a niche category that you've won in?
0: One that we've won on recently is like Best Film Festival Trailer. <laughs> okay. which. You know, I think only those who go to the film festival are really going to see it. Uh, But they also have fun categories. They have, you know, we we also just won the uh, trashiest trailer for uh, a movie called Bad Milo that came out um, (laughs) on VOD and in select theaters a few months ago. Uh, And I won uh, trashiest a few years ago for The Human Centipede. Uh, oh, you did! years ago.
3: These guys are very impressed. Yeah. All of a sudden, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Went up in their estimation. There you quite go. That's, a bit. A,
0: that's a word, all right. Yeah, that's I'm
3: impressed. Me. Sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, someone's got to give that an exactly, award, right? So. Exactly.
3: Somebody's got to get it. All right, so <laughs> we, we need to talk a little bit about sort of the phenomenon itself. Sam, why are they called trailers?
0: Because they used
4: to come at the trail end of the films way back when, and then people realized that hey, when the film's over. People just pack up and get out of the theater. So let's put them at you know the forefront of the film, and then force people to sit through them while they're sitting around with their popcorn and their you know screaming children or whatever, and they can't get up and leave. And then, but then Kevin also mm. they were there. There used to be kind of a
3: package of things at the start of the movie. I mean, besides Car- annoying advertisements and stuff like that. Sure, right?
5: cartoons, serials, uh, short films of all kinds um just i mean that's where the, that's where we got the, our wealth of three stooges and little rascals uh films for television later with these little 10 minute things they used to run in theaters by gosh and uh you know over the years you know they they fell away from packing that at the beginning of uh, features There, possibly owing to the disintegration uh, of the studio system maybe the same studio didn't control all the uh content of a particular screening of a film or something and and so uh we end up like we are today, but when you talk about the trailer thing, it's kind of funny now uh instead of trailers, which we do have traditionally at the beginning at the beginning of films, we also have the ads that precede the trailers, yes. and we have the infamous post credit sequence or mid credit sequence, <laughs> which uh, is essentially an ad for another film. <laughs>
3: Like the Steve, next in the series, Stephen. I hear you chuckling about this. You know what they're talking about, you know,
0: right? It, it's no, it, of course. But uh, I never really thought of it that way. It is actually a return back to the idea of the trailer. If you wait until the end of the movie, you're going to see previews of coming events. You know, right. and I think that's actually pretty ingenious. That's true. That's a good way so, to get it.
3: Stephen, how much of a of a student of old trailers did, are you, or or did you just sort of jump feet first in the into the business that you now inhabit?
0: Well, I had a very uh, odd and unique experience as a kid because um, we would – my family would spend our summers up in Maine and there was a theater called the Criterion Theater, um, which was right near the small town where we were. Mm. And they had uh, – I want to say – you know, they would have a sort of repertory slash first run calendar. So they would show a new movie every day or every other day. And they would show trailers for every movie that was coming up for the next week. So every movie you would go to, they would show seven or eight trailers, and it would be for all the movies that were about to come out. Um, And what they would do is if you went every night, To go see a different movie because they would change it every night. You would see the same trailers, but one would be gone, and then they'd have one new one at the end. Mm. Uh, And this was the late '70s, early '80s when I was doing this. And I just I watched so many trailers again and again and again. And the ones that were great, like my favorite all-time favorite trailer is Alien, and I would see that. Yes. Yes. You know, I saw (laughs) it seven times in a row one week. And you know, and then the movie would come back at the end of the summer, and we'd see the trailer again. It was really exciting. So, (laughs) I feel uh, lucky uh, that I was somewhat brainwashed into loving trailers in a really wonderful, unique.
3: Now, why is Alien such a good trailer? I mean, I mean, a lot of you, you, you know. Oh yeah. You know, so, for, well, one thing it has, first of all, is a great tagline, right? Mm-hmm. In space, no one can hear you scream. That's it. But, yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and what, yeah. What, what else makes it a great trailer? Stephen, you start.
0: Well, it uh, is missing two of the biggest cliches in trailers, which is copy and voiceover. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, when you have voiceover, you're more prone to cliches. When you have copy, you're more prone to cliches. It also has a tagline that is cliche-free. I mean, it's not a play on words or anything. It's just a statement of fact, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And it also has a bit of a horror twist so that you know this is not just another science fiction movie. This has, you know, pretty scary elements to it. But um, to help ratchet that up and drive that point home, there's no music in it per se. It's just a drone at the beginning, and then it goes into a repeated siren. Uh, which is the kind of warning siren that is happening you know when the ship is about to detonate, or I think that 's i think that 's probably where it came from. Mm-hmm. It starts really slow. They do a special shoot at the beginning, which is an egg uh cracking open well it 's it starts with a slow pan down the very very close macro lens sort of shot of uh, the surface of an egg. It could be a planet, could be some sort of alien terrain you don 't really know uh and it 's slow pans that uh kind of dissolve into each other and then it cracks open and then you start seeing footage from the movie and then it amps up more and more and more they're very seemingly random they're very kind of disassociative and then they're suddenly associative and then it ratchets it up and people are running and there's a cat screaming and then people are bursting and you know yelling and twisting and you don't quite know what's going on but you know it's it's kind of you can't look away it's riveting uh Steven I wish you really I
3: wish you'd really thought this thing through you talk <laughs> yeah, I, <know. laughs>
2: I
0: thought you were going to cut me off and be like all right yeah enough you're rambling anyway I could go on Well Kevin Kevin this, trailer, Kevin, it's this sort really of,
3: great Kevin this leads to a point that you made uh, in, in all the emailing and uh, talking that we did which is that I mean really Scott's a great filmmaker and, Yeah, and typically uh, somebody w-
5: with a real Uh, noticeable, eye-grabbing style, it's probably going to be easier to make the trailer. And particularly the ones, uh, I mean, we kind of got, we started getting used to this style of particularly in trailers and commercials for that matter. I mean, it kind of seemed to grow in filmmaking of all kinds in in the 70s and through the 70s and 80s as kind of somebody who could make use of uh, very distinctive, quick shots of images to tell a story. Uh, i mean that's not all Ridley Scott has going on but i but i mean that kind of seems to feed into some of the people who put out the best trailers these days too um as well as you know make the best commercials for that matter generally but i mean yeah alien uh definitely uh a a child of that particular uh uh generation that way late 70s anyways um i i think of the Cohen brothers in more recent years too it's like they're they're really great visual stylists and uh and uh, they they tend to grab images they they have a lot of stuff going on for them film-wise, but they tend to grab images that that strike you. Uh, literally, in the case of a serious man's trailer, there where where with the guy getting his head smacked against a blackboard, and it becomes this rhythm, rhythmic.
3: Well, and we'll play. The, we're going to play that one a little bit later in just a second. We're going to add uh, Alan Arkush, who worked in the trailer department for Roger Corman mm-hmm. uh, at the start of his career. Uh, without Roger Corman, there would have been no Human Centipede. Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, he went on to direct. F- laser just today, <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> he went on to direct a number of films. Well, hey, we'll tell you about it about Alan in just a second. But before we do that, Sam, as we go back, back, back into the world of trailers, the style was very different, and Stephen was saying, you know, some of the cliches are sort of narration, voiceover. Yeah. What are the, the, so back in the sort of. See forties, fifties, early sixties. There were there were these certain conventions, right?
4: That we kind of blare at. You. Yeah, the, the 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 superlatives, the adjectives, like yeah. astounding, <laughs> astonishing, and usually writ large in in a crazy font across the screen, and it just really made these in, in impossible promises. Uh, and then eventually that led into the, the 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 gentleman that would actually address you, the audience, and be concerned about your safety for certain films because <laughs> it could possibly drive you mad. Well, or, <laughs> Bill,
5: so, William <laughs> Castle, right? right. Yeah,
4: yeah. yeah, exactly. And Sometimes
3: an actor matter. would even talk to you. We've got the. Uh, since we're here in Connecticut, uh, we've got the clip for the uh, cinema classic, *Parish*. Here, here's a. It's a three minute trailer. We're just going to play about a minute of it.
1: From under these endless miles of white cloth come the incredible fortunes of Connecticut tobacco, and a fabulous story. As a novel, this story fascinated millions in many languages with the hyped up big money pace of the people who make a modern tobacco empire. Now, it's an exciting new motion picture. Like the book, the picture takes its name from the young man who starts things happening when he walks into this valley. A young man with a mark of the future on him. He's called Parrish, and he's played by the sensational young star of A Summer Place. Hello, I'm Troy Donahue. I play Parrish, and I think I'm the luckiest guy on earth. In a minute, you'll see why. Because I find more than just myself under those white cloths. I find that every man, if he's lucky, has three important girls in his life. The one who introduces him to love, the one who teaches him what love is not, and the one, if he's lucky, who will stand by him for the rest of his life.
6: Aren't you going to kiss me hello?
3: You mean right
2: in front of everybody?
5: Oh, perish! It's
3: actually a really terrible movie. You know, you know, uh, his,
5: his mother probably got mad at him for that speech afterwards. It's like, three important people, three important women? And I'm really? not one of them. It's Friday night. <laughs> you know, call. Thanks. Thanks there, Troy. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Um, all right, let's uh, add
3: uh, Alan Arkush uh, to this conversation. Worked in the trailer department for Roger Corman at the start of his career. Went on to direct a number of films, such as Rock and Roll High School. Get and Crazy, yeah. <laughs> my favorite film. <laughs> <laughs> and television shows. Um, he's a contributor to the web series Trailers from Hell. Hey, um, Alan Arkush, one of the things that watching old trailers in particular... you kind of got the feeling that they were really made by these completely separate entities, which I know still happens, but separate entities so incredibly detached at times from the movies that you really wondered whether there was any communication going on back and forth. first
6: off, let me thank the shout-out to Get Crazy. Oh, one of my all-time favorites. Much appreciated.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks
3: for Um,
6: making it. Yeah, well, trailers originally were made by a company called National Screen Service. Um, And they took over, and they made the trailers up through probably the 60s, they would distribute the trailers to the theaters, and they actually took over uh, and made the trailers for all the pictures. And that's why they had that sort of similar style to them. Um, when I started making trailers, I guess it was 1974, I came out to L.A. and started working for Roger Corman, and I was working with Joe Dante in the editing room. The first day we got thrown together, and we had to finish a TV spot for a movie called Caged Heat. Um, and the ad line, because you guys were talking about your catch line, was a little less subtle than Aliens. It was women of flesh behind bars of steel. You know? <laughs> yeah. you know. I want to uh, see that movie. Uh, yes. It, it's a very good movie. It's written and directed by Jonathan Demi. Wow. Um, and so we had – I'd been a fan of trailers, and Joe Dante was a, is an uber fan of trailers. And we used to watch reels of them, so we just applied – what you guys had already mentioned, that old style of superlatives into a more uh, fast-paced 70s kind of approach. And I guess we were also influenced by the Kubrick trailers, because Stanley Um, Kubrick changed the way people saw trailers. He cut his own trailers from Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, and uh, Clockwork Orange. And those are montage trailers, and they really show up the new style of editing that came in in the 60s, the fast-paced cuts. So we sort of combined them. So working for Corman, we would do one week we'd be doing uh, Eat My Dust, and we'd have to come up with a classic ad line, like Ron, Ron Howard pops the clutch and tells the world to eat my dust. <laughs> uh, and then the following week we would be doing Fellini's Amarcord oh. because Roger Corman would distribute that. And we took our cues on how to sell the pictures from Roger. So there was no market research, there was no advertising companies. It would be like Roger would say, I want to stress the, you know, big bad mama. She make sure there's lots of shots of Angie Dickinson firing a machine gun. Done, <laughs> Roger, <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> and that's kind of how we learned uh to make trailers. We're just imitating what Roger wanted, following what he wanted and sort of creating them on our own as a hodgepodge of our love of classical movies and classical trailers and bold words and the new montage style.
3: Well, I uh, want to give you one quick example of um, uh, one of those trailers that was probably made by that company that you're talking about where there, there seems to be maybe been minimal communication between that company and all the people making the movie uh, and there's uh, reasons to suppose this just based on one pronunciation. So let's hear, exactly. uh, let's hear this at the beginning of Breakfast uh, at Tiffany's.
6: Well, Breakfast at uh, me. me? Yes, join Audrey
1: Hepburn as you've never seen her before, kicking over the traces and bringing to life Truman Capote's
6: Breakfast at Tiffany's.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, Truman Capote. Yeah, I'm. I'm assuming <laughs> I have just
6: finished a trailer from Hell about this trailer. Oh really? So, so, <laughs> and it hasn't aired yet, but it's it's. Uh, I was the the tact I was taking on trailers from Hell was how out of touch the trailer was. And in fact, we remember the movie for the good scenes in that movie, not necessarily for the bad scenes. Um, right. yeah. It's a movie that's reputation is great, but really when you go back and look at it, it Mickey Rooney is a Well, yeah, yeah, Mickey Rooney is, is a <laughs> yeah. real problem.
3: Hey, oh, listen, yeah. we have to take a quick break here. We'll come back. We have, we'll have more of Stephen Garrett and, and Alan Arkush and Sam Hatch and Kevin O'Toole. Okay, take a break. So uh, we're talking to Alan Arkush. He's from uh, many places, including Trailers from Hell. We'll tell you more about that in just a second. Uh, Worked in the trailer department for Roger Corman at the start of his career, too. Uh, And uh, in studio, Sam Hash and Kevin O'Toole. They're the culture dogs. Listen to them on Sunday evenings on WWUH. Uh, And Stephen Garrett is with us. He's the founder of Jump Cut, an advertising company that specializes in trailers. Stephen Garrett, I'm going to start with you. I, I had a friend years and years ago who, who worked um, editing trailers, probably for that company that uh, Alan was talking about, and, and he complained all the time that, that the, the message he always got was essentially a kind of a deceptive message, that whatever one of the most salient aspects of the movie was, he was basically told to conceal it. And, and this was quite a while ago. He said his breaking point came when he was uh, doing the trailer for The Chosen, and they told him, don't make it look too Jewish. Uh, <laughs> And, wow. and which is kind of difficult to do. So but this is this is an issue, right? This there's sort of a basic issue about, yes. um, you know, I, I talked to David Edelstein getting ready for this. And he he was complaining about the trailer for Nebraska because he said it really, you know, makes it seem a lot more chummy kind of buddy movie than than the movie that you really see. That sometimes the trailer really isn't the movie uh, that tonally it's completely different. So how, how do you handle that issue of dissonance?
0: Well, I do uh, what I'm paid to do. So I I basically, you know, whether I agree with it or not, I certainly give it a try and I do my best to make, uh, you know, whatever client is asking for it happy. But um, I'm of two minds. I think on the one hand, if a movie is a great movie but somewhat difficult and a bit of a hard sell, um, I think if you can couch it in a way that makes it look palatable, familiar, reassuring – in the sense that this is a genre you've seen before, then, you know, you'll sell a ticket and you'll get somebody to see a movie they might not otherwise see and they might actually really enjoy it, especially if it's a great movie. Um, So in that sense, I feel like I'm lying to tell a a noble truth. It feels like, you know, I kind of, feel like it's justified. Other times I feel as though it's just you're outright misrepresenting the film uh, for whatever reason. And I don't think it's necessarily the most honest thing to do. But, you know, what the heck. There was one time uh, many years ago, that movie uh, Cider House Rules, mm-hmm. uh, which came out, I want to say about 15 years ago, 14, 15. Uh, and that's a very sweet coming-of-age movie. I'm going to get them mixed up. It wasn't Elijah Wood. It was Toby Wire. Right, right, yes. yeah. One of the other. I think it was Tom Maguire yeah. and Charlize Theron and um, you know he's falling in love with her they're on an orchard uh, and he learns about life and love Anyway, um, the uh, Miramax released it. They tested the film as they did with all their films and as they do now as Weinstein. Uh, It did not test well with men, which is what they were expecting since it's a coming of age story. They figured the women would like it more. Uh, But it started not testing well with women as much as they hoped it would. So a week or two before the movie was supposed to come out, uh, I was working at a company called Geronimo. They're fantastic. They're in New York. They did work on a lot of studio stuff. Um, And we were working on the TV campaign and they said, okay, well, we need a. Uh, we need to appeal to men. Can you make uh, like a almost like a thriller horror version, you know, of the TV spot? <laughs> so I put in a lot of like darker music and white flashes, and I made Tom McGuire look like he was very unstable and borderline psychotic. Uh, there was a scene where they're tussling around in the cider house and he kind of playfully throws her on the bed. i made that like a little bit faster and put it like a hit as though he was trying to attack her. Um, You know, I, it just, I made it look as psycho as possible. And I remember my bosses looked at it and they kind of like were aghast, like that's what he asked for, (laughs) I guess. Well, and apparently Harvey Weinstein was like, yeah, that, okay. That's what I'm asking for. And it almost (laughs) went to finish. They did not air it. Somebody wisely said, no, that's awful. Don't. Um, but that's the the most blatant lie I've ever been involved
3: with. It's now being recut as a Paul Rudd comedy. So yeah, exactly. Uh, well, there was build, that, guy, the guy, that guy.
0: guy. There's guy who recut The Shining as a kind of coming of age. daddy's yes. <laughs> Son. I mean, shining. You know, with a yeah. crazy voiceover. It can be done more well, easily than you think. I well, do.
3: Sam, I know one, one you you're sort of interested also in the some the misdirection that goes on, oh, especially absolutely. with with foreign movies. Talk about the dialogue lists.
4: Yeah, and that, that maybe falls more into the noble truth it's, it's a way of getting people to see films that they wouldn't ordinarily uh, go out and seek out because of the the stigma of subtitles in films. And having gone to Cine Studio for years and years. Oh, yes. We've seen countless uh you know, Sony Pictures classics and, and, and foreign films that yeah. are um you know take advantage of the montage style. And and just load it with music and interesting, uh, uh, kind of usually accolades from film festivals yeah. emblazoned on the screen, yeah. and then usually it's only about two thirds of the way through. You're like, hmm, I haven't heard any dialogue yet, uh, and then people will go see the film and then freak out when they figure out that it is in fact in Spanish, as was the case with Pan's Labyrinth, a film that was heavily, heavily marketed when it was winning awards, and oh, yeah. I, I saw that to a packed house in Manchester. That uh, pretty much almost turned into a revolting mob. once, Because people are used to maybe the first five minutes of a film being subtitled, if it takes right. place long ago or in another land. And once that 10-minute mark hit, everyone's like, wait a second. <laughs> this isn't in English. <laughs> I have to read what? <laughs> it got ugly. But after a while, the movie sucked everybody in. And by the, the end of the film, I think it converted everyone. So.
3: You know, Alan Arkush, there's the noble truth. Uh, and then uh, I know that you feel as though... My Modern a lot of recent modern trailers, you know, you said you kind of went to school uh, on the golden age of trailers and on, on old movies. Uh, I sense in you a certain dissatisfaction with modern trailers that really do feel more like commercials.
6: Well, they, they tend to give away everything, they mm. tend to tell the whole story. And uh, it's a way, it, I guess it's part of the fact that movies, we're in, we're in such a cycle of sequels, everyone wants a sure thing. And for the 15 bucks it costs you to go to the movies, that's kind of understandable. Um, when you look back at some of the classic trailers uh, and classic movies, they would they would always mention that the star had been in another movie that was a success or a character that you had loved.
3: Well, the Troy Donahue thing, they were actually playing the music from Summer Place underneath them yeah. in in, in, yeah. the, in a trailer for a completely different movie.
6: I, I just did a trailer from hell on uh, Adam's Rib with Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. And... Even though it's not a sequel to anything, they made sure to mention that it had uh, roots in the other pa- uh, pairings of those two actors. So in a way, that kind of recalling past uh, times when you enjoyed the actors is pretty common. Probably the, the worst lie that I ever had to perpetrate uh, as a trailer maker was during the cycle of disaster movies in the 70s, like Earthquake, etc., Roger Corman bought this movie from Toho Studios, the people who do the Godzilla movies, called The Submersion of Japan. And it was a disaster picture about how the entire island of of Japan breaks apart and sinks into the ocean, and it was about the death of Japanese culture. Roger had us recut the movie and add Lorne Green as the U.S. ambassador. Why not? Who was getting these phone calls at the embassy (laughs) about having America come over and save Japan. It it didn't make a lot of sense, but the orders were make sure the audience doesn't think it's a Japanese movie when you cut the trailer. And uh, we did the job, and we have Lauren Green, you know, a lot of Lauren Green and no close shots of anybody Japanese. And opening night, we went to the theater on Hollywood Boulevard just to see how it was doing, and people were coming out of the theater complaining out loud saying, don't go in. This is not the movie. This is a Japanese monster <laughs> movie. So the trailer campaign only worked as far as the first audience. And after that, we were dead in the water.
3: Kevin, you know, one thing that you said was, just to, back to, to, to Alan's point about showing too much, telling too much. I know you believe if it's a really good movie, there's no
5: way, really,
3: that you're going to wreck the movie in, in 90 seconds of a trailer.
5: Right. That's, that's, uh, that's my deep feeling, anyways. You could show, you could show the end of a movie. In the trailer, if it's a, if it's a good movie, and you still wouldn't be spoiling anything, because you'd still leave you'd if it, if it was really good enough, you'd leave the audience wondering how you quite got to that place. Uh, I mean, you know, and then I mean, witness a number of movies that even begin with you know, like uh, telling you the ending. Fight Club being one of them. Sure. And uh, then make you sit through about two and a half hours to get to uh, to get to that point. Same same with the trailers too. Of course, if it's not that great a movie to begin with and doesn't have a lot in between in the first and second act, or particularly third act, then yeah, it's it's not going to help the trailer at all uh, to to show that. So for those tra- for those movies, I do feel yeah, you probably want to pick stuff from the first and second act there. I think that happens with comedies a lot too. That uh, that they'll they'll pick the funnier bits. Oh yeah. Uh, of unfunny comedies, yeah. and uh, there you go. Oh, I've seen the movie now. Mm, yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. I I even feel that way with good movies sometimes. Uh, seeing the mo- the trailer for the movie Broadcast News, they really did have the five great lines from that movie mm-hmm. in there. It's, I, I think it's a terrific movie. I really like it a lot. I've watched it other times. But you know, even watching the I know one of you listed Django Unchained as a great tra- trailer. But when when they do the thing about Django, the D is silent. Yeah. I thought, mm-hmm. oh, I wish I'd seen that joke in the movie yeah. you know
6: what's a great trailer is a uh, taxi driver yes yeah. and i was in a theater on hollywood boulevard and the tra- the trailer just sets up the movie beautifully and there's the scene where de niro says Are you talking to me and then there's the reveal of him in the mohawk and it the audience literally you could see them stir and then the taxi right. goes through the fog and then this deep voice that said taxi driver <laughs> coming soon and the a guy stood up in the theater and yelled, "I want to see that movie now."
5: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's the thing. Yeah, you 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 could reveal like the fact that he shaves his head later in the movie, and yeah. and you don't know what you're looking at in the trailer. It's like, how did this character become the other character? How did that happen? It's like
6: it was so compelling, there you go. And so well edited, and story well told, and great music. Yeah. Bernard Herman.
3: Um, I I want to also, we're getting a lot of phone calls here. I want to go to the phones in just a second. I want to also do a special thanks to uh, Lily Tyson, our intern who really uh, pulled this show to get together. It's just done a magnificent job uh, getting you guests. We got a lot of clips and trailers that we can play, although there's something that gets lost, obviously, when you play a clip of a trailer on the radio. So many of them are are visual in nature. There's no point in playing the Shining uh, trailer <laughs> no. on the radio. And as good as the awesome. music
5: is, it's just not going to play the same. Yeah. And I'd, my my story regarding that was I saw that I saw that trailer. I went to see. I was dragged to see actually Kramer versus Kramer with my mom, and it and it was something. A point I wanted to get to. It's like you talked about Kubrick trailers, uh, like the fast cutting ones. There's that's one shot with just yeah. the creepy music, but it's one very effective shot, which in the finished film doesn't even appear for that long. Uh, and and uh, for that kind of visual to appear amongst the kind of trailers that you would think they would typically throw in front of Kramer versus Kramer, uh, it's, it's rather striking. And horror movies can tend to have some very effective trailers when they're not over-engaging and, say, like just loud noises and uh, and revealing how stupid basically the movie can be. <laughs> You for know, horror of, movies, the, I should uh, say
6: the Hitchcock trailers are also out. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, the,
3: I think there are some uh, countries. I think France has actually rules about what can be like laws about what can be in a trailer and what can. I'm not quite <laughs> sure what they are. But but, Stephen, um, to that point, anyway, um, are are there ways these days when you're making a trailer, when you are bumping up against certain restrictions? I mean, I guess you have to follow the movie code stuff. Um, what are the rules for making a trailer?
0: Yeah, I mean, a a trailer needs to be rated, has to be rated, uh, just as a feature needs to be rated. And I say needs to. If you're a signatory of the Motion Picture Association of America, it's a voluntary system, self-imposed by the studios. If you're a signatory and you've signed on to uh, follow those rules, then if you want uh, that green band in front of your trailer saying this has been approved for – they changed it from all audiences to appropriate audiences, actually, as a way of avoiding litigious uh, people who might have been scandalized by what's out there, but um, they also have a red band trailer, which allows you to uh, show R-rated content, nudity, blood, that kind of thing. With a green band, you cannot show blood, although I've seen that violated certain times. And also, they, they get around it by desaturating everything, and of course, the past decade when you have lots of zombies and vampires, you can't avoid blood. So you see everybody, it looks like they're covered in kind of rusty mud. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, everything's desaturated, because so that's less shocking. Um, language, certainly... Um, You have to avoid uh, F-bombs, things like that. Well, you Um, know, I was
3: watching because I think uh, Kevin or Sam recommended I was watching the trailer for Burn After Reading. Yes. And and Brad Pitt has one particular favorite word that he uses all the way through that Mm. that movie, which has been turned into stuff. I mean, they actually (laughs) dubbed a different word in there because you can't say that word. I I would imagine that does happen, right?
0: Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you have to go uh, loop stuff and... um, You know, but if it's a red band, and a a, a green band trailer means you can show it in front of basically any movie. Red band means that you can only show it in front of R-rated movies or NC-17 movies. And that's where you can use foul language and that kind of thing. And, of course, red band trailers have become this kind of edgy way of marketing where it's announced online. Of course, people can look at red band trailers online. So, you know, in a way...
6: We used to literally go to the MPAA with our trailers, Corman trailers, and run them for them and get the notes directly from them. Uh, because nice. the trailers were so much pushing the envelope of what would show in a theater.
0: But that's great. You literally got notes from them specifically because our it. notes are never exactly that specific.
6: Roger was so cheap. Um, we would ha- We would cut the trailers out of black and white dupes and we didn't have a separate narration. We'd have to read the narration out loud as the trailer ramp. <laughs> so like kind of a live theater situation. Oh, that's hilarious. All
3: right. Let's uh, we got a few quite a few phone calls here. I want to grab a few of them. Here's Tim in North Haven vis a vis ratings. Know. Hi Tim.
6: Thanks for having me. Hey, I, I, love, I get excited when I see red band trailers in the theater. I only get to see about two or three of them a year in the theater. But that's not why I called in. I remember a movie in the 60s. There was a horror movie, and the trailer said, this movie's rated V for vomit. And I just thought that was
7: terrible. And I wish you, I hope somebody could remember what that movie was. But what bothers me is when I go and see a trailer, and then I go to the movie, and sometimes the movie's recut, and the scenes in the trailer don't even make it to the
3: movie. Mm-hmm. That, and that's not that unusual, right? No, uh, not no. at all. That's not
0: unusual. Mainly because uh, people who are cutting trailers are asked to cut trailers before the movie's finished, so mm-hmm. they're working from, you know, a film that's not locked yet, and they are just using what they feel are the best scenes for a trailer. Not necessarily the best scenes in the film, but the best, sometimes, mostly they are, but sometimes there's a scene that works really well for a trailer, it just doesn't make sense for the movie, and it ends up being cut, but it stays in the trailer just because it works for the trailer.
3: Um, let me grab one more call here before a break from uh, Peter in Middletown. Hi, Peter.
7: Hey, how you doing? Just fine. Um, I was, uh... I'm... I'm sick of these trailers that are giving away some of the endings. Like, um, uh, like I saw the Red 2 trailer, and uh, it had one, like, it, I don't know if you ever saw a movie, but it, like in in the uh, trailer it had a clip of Anthony Hopkins exclaiming that he was behind it all. And I say, how does that even get through? You know, you're kind of like, there's a couple more trailers where it kind of just gives away the bad guy or gives away the twist to anyone clever enough to kind of look into it. And, and, and does... I mean, how does that even get through on on TV, you know, or on the air, or you know, past all the? Frequency. I don't know
3: how your call got through. You just gave away the <laughs> I know, right? the plot What'd you Do that for? <laughs> I was
7: going to
5: rent that this weekend. They my, were going to make that extra buck yeah. off of me. My, my favorite yeah. recent one
4: was um, was paranoia that uh, that one with yeah. Gary Oldman, Harrison Ford. The 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 trailer not only established the entire film yeah. and explained the Liam Hemsworth's relationship with his girlfriend and her dad, and then explained Gary Oldman's character and how he's supposed to infiltrate and and get all this information. Then it then it drops the second act twist, how everything turns against him, and then it tells you the third act twist on how he's been ahead of everybody the whole time and how he knows how to save the day and save the relationship <laughs> Done. I don't need to see the film at all.
3: <laughs> I wonder if any of that has to do, um, and Alan, I'll ask this question of you, um, I wonder if that's generational, too, that there's sort of a sense that, you know, it's rare these days. It's it's not as though there aren't movies like, a, like Sixth Sense where, you know, really something huge and, uh, and totally mind-blowing happens right at the end of the movie. But, you know, it, there's sort of a sense in which, plot is maybe not quite as important and everybody kind of exists in a permanent state of attention deficit disorder anyway. You know, who knows whether they would even remember anything from a trailer by the time they actually got to a movie that uh, the plots move very fast. There's a lot of action. There's a a lot of things going on. I wonder maybe maybe it matters less to people that there's something like that in a trailer.
6: Um, I guess you could trace that to when the word spoiler was invented, you know, (laughs) and became part of the vernacular. And ways that we looked at, uh, we don't want to know what happens next, and yet a good percentage of the population knows it before you've seen it. Yeah. So, I think that's part of it. Um, when I was making trailers, I didn't we didn't go uh, give away the ending much, but we certainly showed you all the best scenes, mm. you mm. know, and all the big explosions and things like that. Yeah, I think it is generational, and I think that you know when you're in a theater now and people are texting the. The experience is a different one, you know, and audiences take away different things. I'm talking about a younger audience. An older audience pretty much comes to see movie stars, you know. But uh, you, you people who are actually making the trailers of today would know better than I do on this. You know, I'm, yeah, no, uh, I mean, I'm a movie buff, but uh, I don't yeah. have that expertise in marketing.
3: Yeah, what would you say to that, Stephen?
0: Well, I usually my first pass, uh, I try to make evocative, make it interesting, make it mysterious. And mysterious also can be read as... You know, confusing. What is this person's relationship with this other person? And I have some clients who are very, very literal, and they say, "Oh, you know, it's a, it's a good, good first pass, but can you put in more story? Can you put in more story? Put in more story," Mm -hmm. and I end up putting in more story. At a certain point, you know, you put, you need conflict. If you just put in more story and it doesn't seem to advance anything or put a twist, then it gets it just feels superfluous, which it is because it shouldn't be in a trailer. So that's that's why the tendency to put in plot twists and to put in more stuff from the second act and third act, you know, um, there's more pressure there. I've always felt also that um, the more expensive the movie, the more likely the executives want to put in more story so that there is no doubt that people will. Uh, they will not be confused. Like, here is the story. This is what you're getting. We spent $200 million on this movie. We need to sell tickets. They don't want people to be confused. They don't want to go for moody. They will for the teaser. You know, if they're spending like $200 million on a big movie and they'll say, okay, we'll do a like an interesting, weird, quirky, 45-second piece of advertising a year before the release. But before the actual release, in a few months, we'll commission three different trailers that explain so much more of the story <laughs> so that there's no confusion. Please buy a ticket, you know.
3: All right. uh, We're going to take a little break here. Thanks again to Lily Tyson for uh, pulling this show together. Um, We'll take a little break. We'll come back.
2: It's intermission time, folks. So hurry, hurry, hurry. Step right over to our refreshment center for the most extravagant array of refreshment goodies ever assembled under one roof. Enjoy breathtaking mouth-watering goodies, everything from a snack to a delicious full meal. At our refreshment center, you'll find a large variety of goodies to satisfy your hunger, your thirst, or your sweet tooth. So hurry, hurry, hurry. Visit our refreshment center now. Oh boy, I want to get some of that artificial butter that can cross the blood-brain barrier. Today's show was produced by Allison Ehrenreich, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Our interns are Brittany Hill and Katie Pikus. Greg Hill tweets for us and was part of the cast of thousands in our intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ed Harris. For show pages, articles, and the Faith Middleton Show staff's recipe for 100-year-old movie theater hot dogs, visit our website, wnpr.org. And now, on with the show.
3: And that was My Goof in the Credits. Uh, today's show is produced by Lily Tyson and Betsy and uh, Yeah, And hats off to Kion for also producing uh, the very complicated intro that I wrote, the, the fake trailer at the beginning of the show. That was an amazing Ty production. Tie Lunge 3, which uh, a lot of uh, public radio celebrities <laughs> appeared in. But with us, Alan Arkush, who uh, is uh, involved in trailers from hell and has a, a background uh, directing both or making both trailers for Roger Corman and then directing films such as Rock and Roll High School. Stephen Garrett is with us. He's the founder of Jump Cut, an advertising company that specializes in trailers. With us in the studio, Sam Hatch uh, and Kevin O'Toole, they are the culture dogs. You know, it's funny because, Kevin, you and I were thinking about the same thing, I think, in in a way, which is I was thinking about the issue of a trailer that's really, really funny uh, and well-cut that precedes a movie that... In one way or another, is sort of radically different uh, and, and leaves. I mean, when we, we were both thinking of the same trailer, because at one point, yeah. people were saying to me that they were seeing the trailer for a million ways to die in the West, which the red band trailer. Well, I don't know whether it was what band was. Well, that's, but, that's, yeah, but. But, but and and then they were seeing Grand Budapest Hotel, which I had lavishly <laughs> recommended to them, and they would say, well, there were like five jokes in that trailer that were funnier than uh, funnier than anything in that movie of yours, Mac and But you you had your own experience. Well,
5: uh, yes, I did, and and uh, just just a quick note to. Say, Say the Grand Budapest Hotel was generally better than yes. a Million Days to Die in the West, disappointingly. Uh, but uh, but they showed the red band trailer that for Million Ways to Die in the West in the passel of trailers accompanying the uh, John Turturro film with Woody Allen playing his pimp called Fading Gigolo, which you know that's not a really good match in terms of trailers. I mean, I was one of three people in the theater under the age of sixty. <laughs> Possibly, Poss- probably even, uh, and the rest were like maybe ten ten or so people sitting there, and they're sitting through the trailer for Million Ways to Die in the West. The people, these other people, under around thirty five or something, myself, are all laughing, laughing at some of the bits, especially Sarah Silverman and Giovanni Ribisi there, uh, and and these people get done watching this, and and uh, and it fades away, and and I hear somebody from the back, end, so dirty. It's like you're about to watch a movie about John Turturro as a as a gigolo. I mean. No. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, but but I could see the mismatch there. It was an odd thing. Yeah.
6: I thought the Gravity trailer was outstanding. Oh, yeah. yes. Absolutely. And the teaser for Wolf of Wall Street was very funny.
3: You know, um, Sam, you buy a lot of laser discs, and I assume that I they have like trail—they have trailers and trailers
4: and trailers. Um, I may and- be the one guy in this room that used to make trailer mixtapes on VHS tapes for my laser discs. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Yeah. yeah.
3: So I mean, which sort of confirms the notion that a really, really good trailer is its own kind of pleasure, right?
4: Yeah, and I had actually been like haunted by trailers. When I was a kid, I actually uh, went to see—I forget—I might even been—I don't know—some other kind of Spielberg-type product, and I had this memory of seeing this this weird trailer for Poltergeist, which was. It featured just only a couple still images of the film. There were, it was all a documentary-style trailer of parapsychologists talking about ghosts. And eventually I had myself convinced that I had imagined it all until I bought the laserdisc box set in, like, the <laughs> mid-'90s. And sure enough, that trailer was on there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a uh, uh, great trailer can uh, can get me stirred for a while, though the one that's really uh, haunting me right now is uh, Interstellar, the, the teaser yes. for the new Christopher Nolan one. I don't know why. I've just got Matthew McConaughey crying, driving a truck in my head at all times, and I know it's going to be great. I have no idea what it's about.
3: The trailer that I was trying to find for the show today, there was, um, was – One of the released trailers for The Jerk, I'm pretty sure. But it was Steve Martin. It it said at the beginning, this is to be shown only to movie theater owners or something like that. And Steve Martin comes on and says all this very cynical stuff. At one point, he does say, you know, there's a part of the movie right in the middle where nothing happens. Nothing happens (laughs) for seven or eight minutes. They are going to be out at your concession stands buying so much stuff. And then he sort of pauses and says... You're welcome. <laughs> and then at the end, there's you know, this other voice that says, wait a minute, are you showing this to the audience? And you can sort of see the film being ripped out of its sprockets. Um, but but not all of these things. I mean, maybe you have to buy the laser just to, to find to find these things. Um, I mean, Stephen Garrett is somebody who's making trailers right now. Do you consider what you do to be an art to be like is a is a really good trailer I mean, as somebody who's won 12 Golden Trailer Awards, I assume some of your trailers are, are things that you are genuinely artistically proud of.
0: Yeah, I mean, like any mother, you know, with a lot of kids, you're proud of everything you do, uh, for the most part, more or less. Uh, but, um, no, I think a great trailer really holds up. I mean, I think uh, my 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 favorite example, I can't remember the movie, but I remember maybe about 10 or 15 years ago seeing a TV spot for a movie and thinking like an action movie or something being like, oh, my God, that looks so good. And then I saw that movie, and it was awful. And then later that night I saw the TV spot for it and I said, "Oh my god, I want to see that movie now." <laughs> like they I don't know what they did, but it was oh my goodness. I mean, you know, good trailers hold up. Good trailers have I've always equated trailers with songs, you know. They have they have an implicit rhythm, and if you have a good sense of rhythm, then that's half the battle if you're working on trailers. It should be like a pop song. It should have, you know, a, yeah. a verse, chorus, stanza, and you know, it should it should have its own internal logic and rhythm and um and the the way it 's cut should be thrilling, um, even if the movie isn 't um, You can oh, make bad. a really great trailer out of a bad movie. Yeah. You know, you guys ma- made the point, very good point, that a great movie usually makes a good trailer. That's absolutely true. But not all bad movies make good trailers, and there are some great trailers for bad yeah. movies. Or yeah. Not so great movies.
3: Uh, for for Kion Wolf, it's uh, the trailer for Where the Wild Things Are,
2: oh. uh, which is Ooh. a great yes. trailer and
3: yeah. a movie great that really trailer. vastly annoyed her. Yeah, that movie would be. Let's go to Let's have a different precinct uh, heard from here. Here's uh, Aaron in Middletown to— uh, to be the skunk at the garden party. Hi, Ar- hi, Aaron.
7: Yeah. Hi, Colin. I called and you've covered a lot of stuff since I've been you know, waiting to come on. But I was calling just to vent because uh, I'm like, oh, I, now I got a chance to say how much, you know, uh, I can't stand those trailers that <laughs> tell you the movie that, you know, I, you know, I'm not a typical person. I see my films that, you know, since studio real art ways, I go to, you know, Tribeca in Toronto. And the thing is, I'll see a trailer, even on an art movie. And I'll be like, well, I've seen that movie. Yeah. Why go see it? <laughs> you know, all the details are given. And I do like, and since I've been waiting, you've mentioned your, you and all the guests have mentioned those trailers, which uh, strike that balance between give alluding to what it's about, but not giving it away. And, Kudos to those, and I hate the uh, other ones, and frankly, I like seeing movies without trailers, even if I hate it. Um, Case in point, that fading gigolo, that, that was the kind of movie, you see it, and you're laughing, and then you're driving home, and then all of a sudden, it hits you. Oh, my God that was not a good movie. <laughs> I just needed to throw that in there. That's what it hit you. And you're, and you're, you're thinking of Sophia, very, well, you know, me and, yeah. uh, you know, anyway, wow. I'm rambling, but it was a great show. And, uh, Thanks very much.
3: Thanks for your call. You know, I I feel bad because uh, Lillian and and the rest of the staff, they did pull all these great clips of trailers. But we just (laughs) haven't. There's been so much to talk about that. We really haven't had time. Um, I mean, it is true. I think also that there are probably some movies for which it's almost impossible to make a trailer that would make a certain kind of person want to see it. Um, I mean, you know, uh, the Kevin Costner movie where he's a spy and he's got some guy named Guido in the trunk or something like that. No matter how you cut that I mean, is, it's Kevin Costner just, I'm, yeah. so I, well, I <laughs> watched that and, I, and I absolutely think there's no power on earth to get me it's to got go a hurdle there and that hurdle is named
5: Water World
2: yeah.
6: <laughs> one of the most common comments you hear from the guys on trailers from hell is they'll go back because they love a movie they'll look at the trailer and the first comment is well they obviously didn't know how to sell this picture or mm-hmm. they obviously were trying to hide something yeah. or they, they uh, I just did a trailer from hell on um, All That Jazz and it's really shows very little of the movie and none of the important plot points because they just were afraid of the movie put Lauren Green in it
4: yeah
7: yeah. yeah
6: they should have <laughs> Lauren
2: Green in
7: <and> it
3: Cla- <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah, whoa, whoa. And, and, and call it Tidal Wave. Exactly. <laughs> there you Perfect. go. Now that's a
3: movie. <laughs> all right. Bonanza. We Let's have see. to stop here. I can talk uh, to you guys for another hour. I know, yeah. I know. Stephen Garrett. Out
4: to the girl with dragon tattoo, oh. David Fincher trailer.
3: <laughs> all <laughs> <Yes>. David Fincher <laughs> yes, trailers. Yes, all right. Thanks very much to all of you who helped out Stephen Garrett, Alan Arkish, uh, Sam Hatch, and Kevin O'Toole. Thanks to Lily Tyson and everybody else who worked on this show and the cast of thousands who appeared in our <laughs> intro. <laughs>
1: A glass case of emotion! Oh man, I love this movie. This is like my third time seeing it.
2: Wait, this is a movie? I thought this was just a really long trailer. I'm out of here. I only go to the movies for the trailers.